following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Thank you for joining us. If you're here in person, it's a blessing to gather together as one body, as we've already talked about, and uh, serving one one Lord. And uh, what a blessing it is to be one of his followers. Uh, I invite you to join me and Ezra as we continue our study there this evening. We've dived into this uh, Old Testament book a few weeks ago now, and uh, we have made it almost to the end of chapter 2, and that will be mainly our material this evening is covering the last few verses of chapter 2, and we'll look a short bit into chapter 3 if we have the time this evening. So I invite you now to uh, turn there, Ezra chapter 2, and uh, we will review a little bit of what we spoke about the last few times, but then again, as I just said, focus on the last few verses, beginning in verse 64. But in Ezra chapter 2, the first 63 verses that we looked at last time document those who returned to Jerusalem from captivity in Babylon after Cyrus in uh, roughly 539 B.C. makes a proclamation permitting the Israelites to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. We see this proclamation in the end of Second Chronicles. We, we touched on that last time. You can see that there in the last few verses of chapter 36. I won't read that now. And then we see it again restated at the beginning of uh, Ezra in chapter 1 in verses 2 to 4. Now, uh, as we noted the last time, uh, not all chose to return. That's something we can uh, assume. In fact, uh, it may have been actually a small percentage of the total number, number of Israelites that were actually in captivity that chose to return to Jerusalem under this this decree here that we that we see in chapter one, Ezra one five says that uh, then the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and Levites, with all whose spirits God had moved, arose to go up and build the house of the Lord. This verse tells us that God moved in these people's lives, stirring up in their hearts. That's what it means. It's talking about stirring their their spirits, their hearts their desire, so that these people had a desire to return to Jerusalem. This was a a, a supernatural kind of work, a stirring of God in these hearts, so that their disposition was was a deep passion to do this very thing, to return. And so what did they do in turn? They arose and went to build God's house in Jerusalem. Now, chapter 2, really what this does is categorizes uh, the people that returned by their social status or occupation. We saw then last time that there were various uh, uh, clans from Judah and Benjamin that returned, and those names are listed there in chapter 2 by the heads of their houses. And so we read those, and, or some of those, and looked at those last time. Another category of people were the priests, which are mentioned uh, beginning in verse 36, a number of priests returning. Also among those returning were Levites, singers, and gatekeepers. Others were temple servants or Solomon's servants. And finally, we read uh, of those who were undocumented peoples uh, that sought their listing among those who were registered by their genealogy, 
but they were not found, as verse 62 alludes to. Therefore, they were excluded from the priesthood as defiled. And so uh, because they were unable to uh, locate their heritage in the genealogies, they were not permitted to be a part of the uh, Levitical priesthood. Uh, Not that they weren't allowed to return, but they weren't able and allowed to partake in some of the things that the priesthood could uh, until they could prove that they were truly a part of that uh, Levite ancestry. And we see in verse 30, or 63, excuse me, in chapter 2, that uh, once they consulted with the Urim and Thummim, then uh, they would know for sure those were uh, devices of a sort that were used uh, in the Old Testament for a time to, ab- to, be able to, uh, to be able to expose special revelation from God concerning matters uh, which uh, they didn't have prior insight on and needed God's uh, God's wisdom on in those areas. And we see, uh, we see examples of those in the Old Testament where those devices are used. Now, uh, beginning in verse 64 then, we see the total numbers of those returning listed for us here in number. It says the whole assembly together was 42,360. That is the total number of people returning to Jerusalem in this first return. Now, interestingly, if, if you had taken the time, which I don't blame you if you didn't, the numbers in the list in chapter 2 do not total to that number of 42,360. If you total up the numbers listed in uh, the first 63 verses of chapter 2, uh, that number is 29,818. So you may wonder, what is the discrepancy here? Well, uh, notice in verse 64, it says, the whole assembly together. So with that knowledge, we can assume that some uh, of the peoples were excluded from this prior listing of people. For what reason or matter, we, we do not know. It's not really that important. The important matter is the total number. And this total number of 42,360 also uh, uh, is listed in Nehemiah chapter 7, verse 66. And so it gives more authority to the matter that this is an accurate number uh, that's being given here uh, because it's also listed there in Nehemiah chapter 7. So perhaps uh, the discrepancy of numbers here, by which is almost 13,000 uh, of a difference here, may be due to names or numbers that have been not uh, omitted or that have been omitted from the list above, as we already said. It could be that the whole assembly includes women, which are not included in the, in the previous list there in chapter 2, or groups of people from outside the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. Remember, uh, remember what it says uh, back in chapter 1. In verse 5, which we read already, then the heads of the houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and Levites and others who God moved went up. So there could be others from different tribes that decided to go along with them in this, in this journey to build the house of God. And so that may very well be why there's a number difference here at the end of uh, the list here in verse 64. Additionally, then, we see, uh, beginning in 65, there were maidservants and men servants who returned 
And we're also told that there were many horses, mules, camels, and donkeys brought back as well. These probably would have been used to carry the belongings of these people as well as the gifts, the offerings which had been given to those who returned uh, under the decree of Cyrus. Remember what he said uh, in verse 4, chapter 1, whoever is left in any place where he dwells, let the men of his place help him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, besides the free will offerings for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. And so uh, these number of, of, uh, of people and animals returned in this first return to Jerusalem, a great number that we read here. Now, beginning, um, beginning in verse 68, then, uh, is where we will spend our primary time this evening, looking at verses 68 through the end of this chapter. We see here offerings for the temple project listed and called out here. It says, beginning in verse 68, Some of the heads of the father's houses, when they came to the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem, so this is after they have made their journey back to Jerusalem. They're there now. It says, They offered freely for the house of God to erect it in its place. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury for the work 61,000 gold drachmas, 5,000 minus of silver, and 100 priestly garments. Verse 70, So the priests and the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the Nethanim dwelt in their cities, and all Israel in their cities. Now notice, beginning in verse 68, that some of the heads of the father's houses contributed to what we could call the temple rebuilding fund, an offering given so that the building, the house of God, the temple, could be rebuilt in its place. That is, the place which it had been previously built uh, by Solomon. There, the people of God would rebuild the temple of God to worship therein. Now, there, these offerings were given freely, the text tells us, there in verse 68. Not out of obligation, but out of the abundance of their heart and a concern for the temple to be rebuilt. And that's an important thing to, a noteworthy idea, that these are free will offerings given not out of obligation, but out of the abundance of each one's heart. Perhaps we can note in general that God's work is accomplished best when people participate willingly. You think of Ephesians chapter 9, verse 7, which speaks about uh, those who uh, God is pleased with are those who give out of a cheerful heart. Let me read that for you, that passage. It's, I'm sure, I'm sure, a familiar one to you, but nonetheless, we'll read it. Ephesians chapter 9, excuse me, <laughs> Ephesians chapter 6. what I meant to say. Uh, where am I at? Help me out. I think I wrote down the wrong verse here. I believe that's what I meant. Thank you. Second Corinthians chapter 9. I must have an, another one in mind that I listed there. 
2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6 says, uh, But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Reminds me also of a, a previous instance uh, which occurred when the tabernacle was first being constructed before even the temple came into existence when the people uh, worshipped the Lord in the tabernacle. Uh, look with me at Exodus, Exodus chapter 25. Notice the similar kind of principle being uh, spoken about here of of giving cheerfully, giving uh, as each one as each person desires. Exodus chapter twenty-five, verse one says, "Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel that they may bring me an offering from everyone who gives it willingly with his heart. You shall take my offering, and this is the offering which you shall take from them: gold, silver, and bronze." And then it goes on to list the kinds of things that would be necessary for the worship of God in the tabernacle. Verse 8 then says, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them according to all that I show you, that is, the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings, just so you shall make it. And then if you turn over to chapter 35, we find a similar kind of instance here. Chapter 35 in Exodus Look at uh, first verse 4. It says, And Moses spoke to all the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, This is the thing which the Lord commanded, saying, So now Moses is telling the people what God has spoken to him, Take from among you an offering to the Lord, whoever is of a willing heart. Let him bring it as an offering to the Lord. And then uh, look over at verse 20, just uh, a few verses later. In response to this command that they received, it says, And all the congregation of the children of Israel departed from the presence of Moses. Then everyone came whose heart was stirred. Notice the language there, which is familiar to us from Ezra chapter 1. And everyone whose spirit was willing, and they brought the Lord's offering for the work of the tabernacle of meeting, for all its service and for the holy garments. Verse 22, they came both men and women, as many as had a willing heart, and brought earrings and nose rings, rings and necklaces, all jewelry of gold, that is, every man who made an offering of gold to the Lord. I find it uh, interesting, then, that uh, many years later, here in Ezra chapter 2, we find a similar kind of uh, situation taking place. However, here uh, we don't have any kind of indication that Zerubbabel or any of the leaders uh, called them to or commanded them to take up this offering. Rather, uh, out of a response for a desire for the temple to be rebuilt, they gave it willingly, just as their ancestors had done years before for the construction of the tabernacle. Now the people, in a similar fashion, are giving out of the abundance and willingness of their heart for the temple to be rebuilt. 
as we said just earlier on, we think of God's work being accomplished best when people participate willingly. Now, that does not mean there is an excuse to not participate in God's work just because it can or should be done out of a willing heart and not out of obligation. Rather, it presents an opportunity to give with a clear conscience or motive. If something isn't a command, an instruction, or an obligation, it provides a way for us to give with a clear conscience, with a clear motive, not begrudgingly, which is a sin, or not to, on another end of or spectrum, to gain attention for one's gift, which is also a sin. Rather, when we give out of the abundance of our heart and willingly, just as the people did, here we see in this text, it provides an opportunity to give with a cheerful spirit and with a God-honoring spirit. Now notice at the beginning of verse 68, it says, Some, this word may indicate that not all gave to the rebuilding fund, as we may call it. Perhaps some were too poor to give a financial gift, while others may not have had a desire to give anything at all, indicating uh, perhaps the, the nature or the, uh, the true nature of their heart or out of uh, a desire to uh, not participate because they didn't feel they had enough or the right amount to give or didn't want to give at all. But also notice this at the same time that uh, beginning in verse 69, it says, Each one gave uh, freely according to their ability. According to their ability. Obviously, some were wealthier than others who had returned to Jerusalem. But this, is, this uh, did not deter those who had less from giving what they could give. Each one gave according to their ability. The important aspect here is that their participation in the rebuilding of the temple was from whatever means they had. It wasn't about having the most, giving the most, or offering the most. It was each one giving according to their ability, generously and sacrificially as we are taught to do. In fact, it is not wrong to find joy in giving to God's work. Knowing that God will be glorified through your efforts, no matter the amount of finances or maybe it's time that you give, it is not wrong to find joy in, find joy in giving to God's work. That is not self-centered. Self-centeredness puts the glory on self and shows off the gift rather than seeing the gift as a means to an end. And so, uh, whether it be the instance here, which we are reading about, or perhaps as we apply it to our lives today, we can find joy in freely giving to God's work. It is not self-centered if we focus upon the end result or the purpose for which we give. 
Notice here we don't see any names listed. Such and such gave such an amount and so forth and so on. Because it is not about who gives it, but to whom it is being given in the work behind that gift being given. That is why we don't name churches after individuals who give perhaps a, a donation or a gift. We don't name uh, these churches after these people. We don't uh, list the names of people who gave offerings in the bulletin because we see the gift as a means to an end. That being said, God knows those who give cheerfully, and he can choose to reward them as well, whether here on earth or in heaven someday. Our prerogative is not to be blessed with more because we give, but to give willingly and sacrificially for God's work. And that is exactly what we see the people of Israel doing here, each according to their ability. And the important matter is this, that in total, they were able to accomplish God's work collectively as a people of God. And as we read here a moment ago, we see then that the final total of all that was given is listed out here, a a good lump sum amount of, of money which would be used to complete and help in the rebuilding of the temple. Now, the final verse in chapter 2 indicates that the people settled into their cities, some in Jerusalem and others likely in surrounding cities. The establishment of cities we could see as one step in the reestablishment of the people of Israel as an ethnic nation in the land promised to them by God. An important step for them as they return to the land. Of course, though, another important step was the reestablishment of worship as the law of Moses had prescribed. As we know and are aware of, Israel was just as much a spiritual entity as an ethnic entity, or we could say the other way around, just as much an ethnic entity as it was a spiritual one. And here then, in chapter 3, the beginning of chapter 3, we see the initiation of worship beginning again as prescribed in the law of Moses. We won't have time this evening to get into much of this uh, of this next few verses here, but let me read them to you and just make a few comments on them before we close this evening. Beginning in chapter 3, verse 1, it says, And when the seventh month had come, the children of Israel were in the cities, and, people, and the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. Then Jeshua, or Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, and his brethren, the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shelatiel, and his brethren, arose and built the altar of God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Though fear had come upon them because of the people of Israel, excuse me, because of the people of those countries, they set the altar on its bases. And they offered the burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and the evening burnt offerings. They also kept the Feast of Tabernacles, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings in the number required by ordinance for each day. Verse 5, afterwards they offered the regular burnt offering, and those for the new moons and for all the appointed feasts of the Lord that were consecrated, and those of everyone who willingly offered a free will offering to the Lord. 
From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, although the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not been laid. They also gave monies, money to the masons and the carpenters and food and drink and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre to bring cedar logs from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa, according to the permission which they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now, the two things I want to note as we close this evening um, is this. Uh, it says that in the seventh month, we could assume that's the seventh month of the first year that they had been there, assuming a few months perhaps had passed since they had settled and established them, established themselves. We see them gathering then to Jerusalem. It says, as one man to Jerusalem. This is a figure of speech portraying the unity of the people as they gathered to Jerusalem to worship the Lord. Think about this. It's probably, or it is, the first time that God's people had gathered in Jerusalem to worship God as prescribed in over 50 years since the temple had been destroyed. That means since then, no true legitimate temple procedures or worship had taken place. Fifty years. Now, I don't think it's hard to recall to our minds uh, last year when we uh, temporarily closed the church for just a few weeks. And if you're like me, and I assume you are. There was a deep yearning. Pastor and I were talking about this just the other day. That in just a few weeks' time, there was a, a, a deep yearning, a desire, a, a discomfort with not meeting and worshiping as God has prescribed us to do, gathered as one people. So take that kind of feeling and imagine the people of God as they gathered again as one not having done that in over 50 years. And how proper of a time for it to be in the seventh month when, when the Feast of Tabernacles would be celebrated amongst many other offerings and feasts, and that which we will note next time as we look into this passage more deeply. Now, the other last thing that I wanted to mention uh, was this. Look at uh, verse 6 for a moment. It says, From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, although the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not been laid. You know, it's interesting that uh, in the Old Testament, we, we put uh, much emphasis, and the people of God do, on the temple itself. In coming to the temple of God to worship Him, that is... That is the, the, uh, the pinnacle or the, the, the highlighted spot of worship. That is where God dwells within the temple or in, and with his people there. His presence is there. But at the same time, here we see the people of God worshiping where there is no temple. You may wonder exactly what the people of Israel thought about when they were doing this. Perhaps it was a lesson from God, 
amongst other things, other things, teaching them that they could worship the one true living God wherever they were. Of course, God had prescribed in the law certain specifications of the temple and the altar and worship and, and not to build an altar to him in other locations, but in general, the God of Israel could be worshipped from wherever. Didn't have to be in a temple. That's not what they were doing here. True, the altar had been laid, the foundation had been laid and been built for the altar, but the temple itself, the building, and all of the specificities of those were not yet, uh, had not yet been accomplished. And yet here we see God's people worshiping freely, openly, and legitimately before God here as they return to Jerusalem. Perhaps that's a good reminder to ourselves today that uh, even in times like last year when we couldn't meant, that is not that is not an excuse, an exemption for us to not continue to worship the Lord. And uh, and so we do that. We give thanks. We worship Him. We give glory to Him. Of course, we're not giving sacrifices. We don't need an altar. We have the one perfect sacrifice of Christ on our behalf, once for all which gives us the freedom and the liberty then to worship him wherever and glorify his name. And I pray that we will continue to do that, whether here, at home, or wherever we may find ourselves, wherever the Lord places us in the, in the months and years ahead until we are with him. Let's pray as we conclude our time this evening. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the account that we read here of your people returning and how, how uh, amazing that would be to be a part of, of that uh, reuniting of the God's people in Jerusalem to worship the one true living God. Lord, we thank you that, uh, that it also reminds us of your, of your goodness and your faithfulness to your people. And that you, uh, though you though you disciplined them for time and took them and allowed them to be taken into captivity, your faithfulness to them through your covenant remains the same. And, Lord, it also reminds us of a coming day when you will once again bring back your people to your land, uh, to their land that you've given to them, and, and allow the nations to look upon Israel and to see you and your relationship with them and to cause them to come up with Israel and to worship you one day. Lord, we look forward to that. Until then, Lord, may we continue to praise and worship your name, your excellent name, your praiseworthy name in all that we do. We ask this in your son's name. Amen.